Hey, I'm Mike Morton. I'm the research director at the Samara Center for Democracy. I'm also the editor of our new book, Real House Lives. The book is based on our latest series of exit interviews with former members of parliament. We've been doing exit interviews with departing MPs for a decade now because they give us a chance to hear directly at length and in very honest ways from MPs who have deep experience of our democratic institutions uh, and, and broad insight into what's working and what's not. I can tell you, you come away with a realization that these are serious people, committed people, uh, that there is a deeply entrenched culture of good governance, respect, and responsibility, which is reflected in the people in public life in Canada. That's the good news. The bad news is there's a lot that gets in the way of good people wanting to do good work in public leadership. And most of the MPs we spoke with would have barely had the opportunity to wield their talent because they were overwhelmed with work and not always in rational or constructive ways, uh, because their independence was policed by leaders and even caucus members who didn't want the headlines and headaches that come with individuals thinking for themselves, and because the institutions are, are not always being properly stewarded, because power is not always being properly shared. Those MP stories are the basis of Real House Lives, which is available for purchase online now. And, and to launch the book in Toronto, we wanted to bring together three former MPs who have all in their own ways distinguished themselves in public leadership to talk about their experiences and share advice for the next generation of public leaders. This is the recording of that conversation, which took place March 10th at Royal Cinema. You'll be hearing from Peggy Nash, the former MP for Parkdale High Park, in uh, the former official opposition critic for the M NDP in the portfolios of finance and industry. Robert Falcon Willette, the former MP for Winnipeg Centre and chair of the Indigenous Liberal Caucus. And the Honorable Lisa Raitt, the former MP for Milton and Halton, uh, who held a series of senior cabinet roles and was later the deputy leader of the Conservative Party. I kicked the discussion off by asking them what surprised them the most when they first got to Ottawa as MPs. I guess the a contradiction maybe between what being in this incredible place, I always and still do feel a sense of awe being in the parliament buildings and feeling the history of the place and the transitoriness of being elected there. So I felt, you know, when you stand and, and you speak in your place in the house, feeling just incredible uh, pride and responsibility. And yet at, I was surprised when I found out that uh, some, some of the roles were quite perfunctory. So, for example, in question period, you get 35 seconds to ask a question, 35 seconds to answer, uh, and it's a lot of it's quite stage-managed, and, and you can dig in to meatier speeches, but often you're speaking to an empty house. So I was surprised at how little debate there was actually in the house um, compared to committees where you often are able to engage more, um, more directly and I, I found that to be a much more satisfying experience. So the contrast between how great this place is and the wonderful feeling of finally getting there uh, and then feeling that some of the time wasn't really well used and well served in terms of our democracy. Is that, a, is that a shared experience? 
For, well, for me, I had a little bit of a different experience because I was plunked right into the executive position. I was in the executive branch, I guess. The, I was part of government as a cabinet minister. And I remember thinking, my gosh, uh, boy, I'm being managed. And every minute of your day is consumed and you are told by your deputy minister, here are the books to read. And you're told by your staff, here are the places you're going to go. And you're just told everything, what to do. And, and it lasted for every year of those seven years that I sat in cabinet, that I had no ability to even color outside the lines a little bit, which is fine, because it would probably protected democracy in general that I was kept to that restricted. <laughs> right, that is a joke, by the way. Um, however, being in opposition it made me realize, number one, how much I didn't understand about parliament, about the importance of it, about the value of being a member of parliament. And um, I grew to have a, a lot more of a respect for the individuals that sat around me. And I, I reflected on this on International Women's Day on Friday, that of all the places I've ever worked in my life, I have found that the House of Commons was the most equal. Because as one of 338, you're one of 338, and you have all the same privileges and powers. And I, um, for me, that, uh, maybe that has a little bit to say about the other places that I've worked in, but nonetheless, it was, for me, it was looking back at my first experiences, knowing that I really did not get that crash course in democracy, or what it meant. I was placed into a role and a position, and, um, and I wasn't a puppet. I, I performed and used my skills to help. However, I was programmed in terms of what I was supposed to do and when, and beyond the, you know, got to go to question period and got to go to these meetings. It was just constant. Can I just follow up really quickly? So you, you were a minister within what, a month of going to Ottawa or right, pretty much right away. Yeah. So when, when you find yourself in opposition, what, what were you learning about Parliament? When I was in opposition? Yeah. yeah. Well, for example, I was never allowed to have a private member's bill and I learned the importance of it, what a draw was, what it wasn't. I learned that, quite frankly, um, it is a grind to be a member of parliament who wants to do good public policy work because you don't have the staff that you may think you want to have, and if you do have staff, they may not be at the level you want them to be, especially if you've been around public policy for 20 years. Uh, because the good people are often stolen by the other people, right? They, uh, they come in at your level and then they're, they're off and running somewhere else. They all want to work in the leader's office, regardless of opposition or, or in government. So those are the kinds of things I learned um, in that you do have a lot more freedom as a member of parliament than you do as a cabinet minister. And it is about how you use your time and what you do. But I also felt that I, also, I knew the ropes a little bit more. And I had wished, you know, we had a big discussion, if you recall, Peggy, about democracy with Michael Chong's bill mm -hmm. that made its way through, through Parliament. And there was so much discussion around it, and yet when we got to the point of implementing the bill that ended up passing, it was a bit of a fizzle. It was puny. Yeah. It was puny. It really was. Yet we fought so hard and had so much strong opinions on it. Um, so, you know... I don't know what else I can add to it in terms of what I noticed. I, I noticed a big difference, though. Yeah, sure. No, that's really interesting. Robert Falcon, you, your background was in military and academia. Did that prepare you? Did you feel for parliament, or how different was it? Um, I think the thing, when I arrived in parliament, I was uh, so aware 
that this, for me and my family and the people that I represent, and not only from Winnipeg Centre, but uh, from the prairies, Indigenous peoples, First Nations, from my community. Um, for instance, one of my uh, ancestors, we had fought with Lou Riel in 1885 at, at Batoche. Uh, in, uh, near Battleford, we had 10 men who were hung in the largest mass hanging in Canadian history. And uh, when Lou Riel, we knew his history, uh, that he had been in Parliament. And for me, it was very significant to be able to be there. Uh, just my presence, um, you know, and I actually I still get emotional actually thinking about that, you know, the first time I got to go in the chamber. Uh, this is a place that, you know, my ancestors would never have been allowed in. And, uh, and so when I arrived, I really wanted to make sure that I make a difference. That why words weren't simply, because I heard so much about people reading talking points and reading prepared speeches and, you know, just following along and going along with the crowd and, and you know, like, because every party prepares, a, a, you know, your position on a various issue and, and you know, you, you can modify it a little bit. But what I, what I wanted to do was I might only be there for four years. One term, maybe two if I'm lucky, and then because we have a huge turnover in, in the House of Commons, and I already knew that because uh, I'm a university professor and I was studying this quite a bit. And I, I said, well, you know, if I'm going to get up and give a speech, I'm going to make sure that this is from, you know, from my heart. This is, this is representing uh, the people. And I was told by an elder, he said, your word is your honor, your word is the people. And I always took that in every, uh, every moment I was in, in that house. I, uh, it, uh, and I loved every time I, I was in there. I kind of, I know I've read the book, uh, you know, uh, The Tragedy of the Commons, but I really believe, um, you know, you can actually have debate in the house. Um, it might not happen uh, when people are watching. <laughs> Because, you know, you have the speaking, you know, uh, the, the top people get the speaking points, you know, at, uh, you know, on a private member's bill or emergency debate, you know, is one of some of the examples, you know, we start off with, you know, the minister giving a speech uh, on an emergency, perhaps on Indigenous suicide, I remember it was one of our first emergency debates in, in 2016. Um, and then it goes over to the you know, official opposition, the conservatives, and I don't remember who did it, did it on, on uh, it was Kathy McLeod who spoke, and then it comes back to us or to the NDP, and then it goes around, and you know, you're there till midnight, and you're like, okay, you know, it's gonna be my, you know, and then you're arguing, and this is one of the things, uh, you have to kind of fight, elbows up, like it's also kind of what I find as an anthropologist, I'm an anthropologist, is there are spheres of influence even within the party, and there are hierarchies about who gets to speak at what time. And so the parliament, you know, you have the ministers who get, you know, the chance to speak. Then you have parliamentary secretaries who have to give the official government position. And then whatever's left over for the backbench government MP is, you know, usually, you know, 10 minutes to midnight. Mm -hmm. And uh, not two minutes, but 10 minutes to midnight. And uh, so then you, then you have your opportunity. But the, by that time, the media aren't listening. And so then you have to think, well, you know, I'm speaking, and I'm speaking from the heart, I'm speaking for people who might not be in, uh, or who is going to have their voices heard. So how do I make sure that this, um, what I say, actually influences government policy? 
And I think that when I was, you know, apart from a few other things, but I think that's what I was most surprised about was sometimes how difficult it was to find, you know, ways of pulling levers to make a difference, to take, you know, the ideas that you were sent there, your lived experience to, you know, influence the government, not only from, you know, in a public way, but also behind closed doors in the government lobby. Um, and so that was perhaps most difficult. And I'll leave you with the other final thing that uh, I was most surprised about is I had to become an administrator. Mm -hmm. What, like, uh, <laughs> you know, I ran a department at the University of Manitoba uh, with university programs and students and professors and things like that, but, you know, like to have to manage a budget and spend time, you know, filing claims and, and you know, making sure, you know, everything is done, ex you know, very properly according to the rules, otherwise we, you know, will end up on the front page of some newspaper, you know, that, you know, someone did something and, and, and and there were all these rules, hundreds of rules in the House of Commons, and you kind of have to learn these rules over a certain period. And I kind of, some days I think, you know, is this why I was elected to be an administrator, or was I elected to represent the views of people in the House? I kind of, I still wonder about that, but anyway. But you ran for speaker. Uh, I did, but I wanted, you know, once again, you know, uh, because I, I'll tell you why I ran for speaker. It's, you know, I, and I know it's kind of crazy, first time MP, but I said to myself, you know what, hey, uh, this, this place is kind of stuck and ossified in, in the way it thinks. If I kind of throw in uh, some different ideas, you know, and I did get a lot of pushback, I got to admit. Uh, a lot of people were very, very, very upset. Some journalists were very upset. Oh, you're, you're breaking the rules and the traditions of the house. It's a place I, of a lot of traditions. Lots of traditions. <laughs> I had you on my ballot. <laughs> oh, shoot, I should have kept going. Not, a, not above the conservative candidate, but you were there. You were there. <laughs> we served together on the finance we committee, did, yeah. and we, we thoroughly enjoyed each other's company. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so that's good. Uh, Robert Falcon, you, you mentioned f trying to figure out what levers to pull, and, and this is something we pursued with the MPs we interviewed. You know. What, how did you feel the most effective in Ottawa? And some talked about committee work, uh, others talked about you know, using private members' business. Sometimes it was pulling a minister aside in a, in a uh, back hallway, or sometimes it was getting out of the hill altogether and, and trying to build a movement. So this is something I wanted to ask you guys. Where did, where did you feel like you were most effective at driving the kind of change that you were passionate about as MPs? Peggy, do you want to start? Well, I'd say all of the above. I mean, if you don't, um, organize in your community and try to bring the community to Ottawa, um, you don't really have that base. So for me, I had different communities. I had my, my constituency and there were issues that I would take to Ottawa, whether uh, we had a big Tibetan community, so that was an issue, or rail safety was an issue. So these were things that we would organize in the community and then push for them in Ottawa. Um, but often, and Lisa knows this, you, you walk across the floor to speak to a minister uh, to try to get things done uh, on behalf of your constituents. Usually, sometimes it was immigration issues or I don't know what, um, EI, something where you really needed to get the minister's attention. Uh, I think I never had a great luck of the draw when it came to private members' bills. I had lots of private members' bills, but they never, they never made it to the floor. But um, I think it, it differs 
whether you're in government and if you're a minister or where you sit. Um, I was in two parliaments and in one I was part of a fairly small caucus and we were the fourth party. Um, so history is kind of repeating itself now. Mm -hmm. But uh, then I was in a caucus that was the official opposition. But it was a majority government. So it was much more difficult to, uh, to actually get things done, except for speaking with a minister. Um, sometimes you could influence things at committee, uh, but ultimately the government had a majority. So what, what I tried to do as the finance critic was, um, you know, I had my key issues like infrastructure spending, and we would um, we would really try to make that a priority, and you know I could get the others in my caucus to raise that issue, and we would push on it. In a minority government, I mean, I, I remember when Jim Prentice was chair of the industry committee, and it was a minority conservative government, and the government was going to sell a space company, McDonald Detweiler. And um, anyway, we raised a hell of a hullabaloo on that and um, got witnesses to, I was one person on the committee, got witnesses to the committee, made the case, and Jim Prentice ultimately made the decision to stop the sale That's of that right. company. Yep. And it was the first time that yep. that had happened. It was the first sale that was blocked. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was something I felt, okay, it kept an important Canadian company in Canada. It's now Canadian, owned by Jim Balsilli and mm -hmm. some others. And um, I felt, okay, that got accomplished, even though I was part of, a, I think, a 19-member caucus. So you never know. There's, as you say, Robert, you've got to look for your opening. You've got to know where to shoot the puck. Yeah. You want to <laughs> coin a phrase. I would say that um, obviously as a minister you get more done, uh, but not necessarily what's in your mandate letter. And in my last, uh, my last portfolio was transport where I had lots of experience and I was able to figure out how to push through something that was an incredible annoyance for many people, but it needed a legislative fix, and that was whether or not you're allowed to hold your phone as you took off or landed on an airplane in Canada. And I look at that as possibly one of my biggest accomplishments <laughs> because it took about nine months of trying to figure out which lever to pull. Was that you that did that? Thank you so yes, much. Yes, it was me, Peggy Nash. Thank yeah, a round of applause. <laughs> See what I mean? Yeah, lots of things I did. But that to me, uh, it's working, it's knowing your portfolio enough to know what was really important to stakeholders out there and what was a real annoyance and try to try to fix something in the government. And Peggy and I were talking about this earlier. Um, bureaucracy is big. 285,000 people work in this Government of Canada piece, and they don't always get it right. In fact, they get it wrong an awful lot. And even uh, I was sharing how when I separated from the, the House of Commons, um, every aspect of my separation, the bureaucrats got wrong. They sent a check to a non-existent account at a different bank that I didn't bank at. They 
gave me dental benefits, then took them away, they insured me, and then they didn't insure me. And it all means that I have to go through this process, and I thought, I think I better contact my MP to get some help on this. <laughs> uh, he may not be helpful. But it's, uh, it does show you that it can be frustrating, even when you know what the system is, you still sometimes need a little bit of help interpreting. And that's why, you know, in your book, you talked about whether or not we become paper pushers and whether or not we're taking on roles that the public service really should be fulfilling. My gosh, if we don't do that, there would be a lot of families that do not have um, their, their kids with them. There'll be people who wouldn't be getting their Canada pension. There'll be people who wouldn't be getting their EI. There, there'll be people with massive mistakes on CRA because, as you know, CRA still can't give the right information on their hotline. And that is the role of the Member of Parliament that I, I was really invested in. And I had, what I did was I just made sure I had really good people that worked for me in my office. And those caseworkers are worth their weight in gold. And by the way, after 11 years, they were burnt out. Like Alexandra is still not returned to the workforce yet just because it was a long 11 years. So she deserves her time off and she'll find something else, but maybe not dealing with the public again. <laughs> so the question was how you felt most effective in the comments. So you talked about you know, trying to uh, make change through giving a powerful speech and said, well, I also think one of the things, uh, you know, MPs, uh, you know, the executive side, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, I think there is a difference between when you are in opposition versus when you are uh, in government. It is extremely important because, you know, when you're in government and, you know, you need uh, to work on an issue or you have an idea, you have to, you can see the government uh, ministers, uh, you know, the executive branch on a daily basis and you can say hello, you can talk about those issues. Um, you can influence them. I'm not the one uh, directing anything as a backbench MP. Simply, my I think the role of an MP is to be an influencer. Uh, you know, opposition. I think it's, they have question period. They have other moments, which are very often very vocal and very important. Um, but what I found is a lot of work actually does get done uh, behind the closed doors. And some days it might be at, uh, you know, uh, over drinks, it might be a dinner, it might be, uh, you know, at a quick little lunch or just a cup of tea, you know, having a chat and having a, you know, sometimes a laugh with, uh, or even sometimes the ministers come to your riding. You know, Diane Laboutier, who's the Minister of National Revenue, came to Winnipeg a number of times and uh, she doesn't, uh, her English has improved considerably. She's from Quebec, from the Gaspé. Uh, but, you know, as I speak French uh, as well, I had the opportunity of spending, you know, a, week, a, you know, a couple days with her on, on extended periods, traveling around the region. And, uh, you know, so I could push ideas saying, well, you know, you know we got this new Canada child benefit uh, for, you know, for people. How are you going to ensure that Indigenous families also get this benefit to lift them out of poverty? Uh, well, we, they have to file taxes. Okay, so is there a unit for them to go out and file uh, taxes or goes out to specifically advocate to Indigenous communities they should file their taxes because there's a whole slew of history related to taxation on reserve communities, whether people have a job to even pay taxes, so why even file taxes? But if you don't file taxes, even if you, you know, have no money to pay to the government, uh, you will not get the Canada Child Benefit which is significant, uh, has helped reduce poverty among children, uh, which is extremely important. One of the reasons, you know, I, why I was in Parliament. Did you feel, uh, did you feel that 
other backbenchers in the governing party understood that role and, and were effective in influencing ministers. You know, we had one MP suggest to us that uh, they felt like the the nature of that role isn't always properly understood, and that you're not a part, you're not a, you don't belong to the executive, uh, but you're there to sort of work your influence in other ways. Well, I think a, a, MPs have different reasons why they're there, uh, different focuses. Uh, some, the goal is, you know, I focus on my riding, I want to get reelected. Uh, others, you know, I'm in Ottawa, while I'm here, I'm going to work really hard, and, you know, that's a good thing, and everyone has a different level or uh, level of influence. Like, there are some issues that no one really seems to care too much about if I talk about it. Like, people don't, uh, you, know, I, you know, I had a couple of times I wanted to talk a little bit about international or foreign affairs. You know, people really wanted me to talk about indigenous issues. Uh, I remember being on the finance committee uh, with Lisa, and people really, you know, okay, Robert, you know, you're here on the finance committee, but, you know, you should talk about some indigenous issues. So I ended up talking or asking all the questions about indigenous things. You know, once in a while, other MPs on the committee would ask those questions of, of the minister, but generally it was always me asking those questions. You know, if I asked about bond trading and other things, they might not, uh, you know, they might not care about it or... Uh, it's just that, you know, I'm not seen as being an expert in that field, perhaps, uh, or not being credible. Uh, you know, it's not my expertise. Uh, while other MPs might have a, you know, a much, you know, deeper understanding. I know that you've worked in, in the financial sector and you probably have a, you know, you were great on the finance committee. A couple of times I had my jaw dropped. Like, <laughs> wow, what a, what a question. I wish I'd come up with that idea. <laughs> but isn't that the great thing about the House of Commons is that we're really mostly generalists. We're all generalists. Whatever your, you know, whether you were a medical doctor, a lawyer, or an economist, or uh, my friend Tracy Ramsey who came off the Ford assembly line, uh, whatever your background is, and that's the House of Commons. I love that about it, that people come from all these backgrounds. And there's some people who have that, uh, like um, we were just talking about, she ran for leader the... Kelly Leach, uh, she was the labor minister. So even if you have an area of expertise, that may not be your portfolio or, or you know, the committee that you sit on. And, and I really like that because I think, yes, you do have to learn things. You learn a lot. But it plays to people's common sense and sense of their community. I don't know. I, I like the fact that we're generalists. And on that point, on, on backbenchers, the most, um, look, as a minister, to your point about people coming and asking you for stuff, for sure there were people who were far better at getting a minister's ear and trying to get their own, uh, their own project uh, advanced. But I found those were people who had backgrounds in organizing or people who had backgrounds in being in provincial politics or maybe in a counselor kind of thing or in a university where they were used to that kind of advocacy. I mean, four years in a majority government goes by like that and if you're in a minority, it's what, 18 months to get anything done, really. And as a result, the people with experience in um, advocating for the community are head and shoulders above those who are just coming in as just being elected. And it does, you know, to the victor go the spoils. And they knew, uh, boy, I did a lot of work for the Atlantic provinces, I tell you. They had some guy, it, Greg Kerr was former minister of finance from Nova Scotia, and he knew exactly what to say and tell me where to go and find it in the budget and make sure I delivered it to his riding. 
and he was successful. And now there's a ferry to Yarmouth. So, one of the interesting things about the Atlantic Caucus that we even in in the in, in the Liberal uh, from 2015 to 2019 is actually, a, it's interesting you mentioned, uh, but they were actually very coordinated even within our caucus in trying to advance their collective interests uh, within the larger government. And, uh, and they would, you know, coordinate amongst themselves. Oh, well, I'll, I'll tell Lisa today something, and then the next day another MP will say the similar thing in, in the minister's ear, and then the next day another uh, MP... In caucuses the, within caucuses. Caucuses Very within much. caucuses, Very influencing uh, what, uh, what the decisions are being made. It's, and it's quite fascinating to watch how people sometimes these, because it's not, you know, it's sometimes really not even organized. It's just kind of people kind of figuring it out themselves with some people who, who kind of say, well, you know, if you do this and you do this and I'll do this for you and it, maybe it'll get something done. That, that's fascinating. So we're hearing about sort of various tools in the, in the tool belt and different MPs sort of figuring out um, different ways to wield those, different levels of effectiveness. Uh, so, so that's, those are the levers available to you. Uh, what were the biggest obstacles to what you felt your job was or what you were trying to accomplish in Ottawa? Not being in power. <laughs> Not having enough money. Not having enough money. <laughs> There's never enough money. There's not enough money in the universe to do everything that everybody wants to do in Parliament. But I'd like to be there to try. <laughs> I'm not surprised, Peggy. Um, but yeah, there's, there's just not enough money. And I think the, the biggest challenge that I found in getting things done, um, I'm going to be honest with you, is sometimes uh, perhaps the public service was a little bit more no than they were, I don't mean Bill more no, but they were a little bit more about saying no <laughs> than they were about saying yes. And there's a great ability for process to impede progress. And that is true both in terms of sitting in the government or sitting in the House of Commons, filibusters, um, your debate not coming back for months because somebody's decided your PMB is not going to make it through on this go around. So those are the those are the challenges. Is that again the timing is held by other people, either within the bureaucracy, within the government, within the house, the, and that's just something you don't have any control over whatsoever. Any other thoughts and obstacles? Well, you know, I. I, I felt that in a minority government there was, you needed to cooperate to get things done. And so sometimes it was the opposition ganging up against the government. Sometimes um, you could ally with the government to get something done. And um, so I'm a big fan of proportional representation for that reason because I find, I, I know it probably goes fast when you're in government, not having experienced that, but it, um, it does create a system where the government's agenda, yes, it can be delayed by procedure, by rules, but basically the government is in the driver's seat and they won the most seats, they should be, but not to the total exclusion of the opposition, and so I believe that if there, if it wasn't a winner-take-all system, that we would be forced to forge alliances and engage in more cooperation. So, 
Well, I think the, for myself, the most difficult issues were really related to the procedure. Um, whether, it, as you know, examples, a lot of indigenous issues, uh, you know, there was a, we had a bill that, or um, an issue related to Indian, Indian status that's been going on for decades. You know, who's an Indian, who's not an Indian, women with status, whether they, you know, it was, anyways, it was changed back in 1985 uh, by, you know, a conservative government. And then they only gave status to a certain uh, generations and then they excluded other generations uh, being discriminatory against, uh, still against women and their descendants. And uh, anyways, a bill came forward and the government wanted to modify it or the, you know, the government lawyers wanted to modify it just enough to meet the ruling of the court. But, you know, the judge said, well, you know, you probably should go further than what I've suggested here as the minimum in order to eliminate all discrimination. And it took a long time. It took, you know, you know, they presented one bill, you know, I was arguing about it, you know, you know, it was voted on by the House. I was very upset over it. It went to the Senate. The Senate, you know, I work with the senators. Uh, you know, there are other spheres of influence in Parliament as well. You don't have to accept simply what happens in the House as being the final say. And you work with senators. They change the bill. It, send, it comes back to the House after six months. And then you can get that change that you're, uh, I was looking for. But it, it, you know, the bureaucracy does spend a lot of time, I feel, because they've been doing things for so long. And I talk about reconciliation as an example. Uh, it's very hard to take 281,000 individuals who have been doing something for 152 years and saying, you know, today we're going to do things a little bit differently. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, 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 you know, it's because people have invested, you know, their efforts, their energies into doing something in a certain way. And when you ask, tell them, well, you know, you know that was right, but now we want to change. Whoa. What's the basis? Where, where is this change coming from? What's the procedure? What's the precedence? What's the outcomes that are going to come of this? What will be the, uh, you know, the, what will be the impacts of this decision? And there's uh, lots of little things that need to be done before something can be agreed to. And uh, people can find lots of ways of putting up roadblocks in order to say no to an idea or an issue. And it just makes you have to work so much harder to get to something that you're going to do in the end, but you know, why don't we just do it? <laughs> so we can focus on other things, because there are so many things in Canada that you know, we could change and need changing and uh, people that need to be included but, or in, in the political system, but we just, because we have all these procedures, it, we just create such barriers to advancing in a more timely way. No, that's good, you know, we tend to think about Samara tends to think about power within Parliament, but it's good to be reminded that you're also trying to um, you know, grab the steering wheel of this enormous ship, and, and it, it might, might be hard to turn even when it seems like uh, uh, you're uh, in the driver's seat. I, I, I wanted to uh, pick Peggy up on, on this question of cooperation, because one of the things that I found really fascinating in the interviews was how often MPs described a kind of almost unrequited desire for uh, stronger, deeper relationships with, with members from other parties. Uh, I found that really striking, uh, even the way MPs recalled you know, s small acts of cooperation or even just small acts of kindness. Um, and, and so I'm curious you know, what your experiences were uh, building relationships uh, across party lines and, and if, if you were able to do so effectively, why, why you think it worked uh, despite a context which is in some sense, in some respects, uh, maybe more polarized than, than the Commons once was. 
Well, you know, uh, Lisa and I were talking earlier about partisanship. And, you know, anybody who has won a seat in a swing riding, and Lisa, well, I guess all of us, that's all of us, um, you have to work so hard to get elected. And then when you're elected, you have to keep working hard, not just to do your job as an MP, but to keep trying to win support. Um, a, a friend once described it as though you're, you're running at 100 kilometers an hour and there's somebody running after you with an ax at your back. Um, you, you feel constantly that pressure of, of that partisan competition. So anybody who goes through that kind of an election feels that. However, um, I mean, there are there do exist all kinds of opportunities. We talked about going across the floor, talking to ministers, talking to other members, trying to build support. We would work together on various committees. I was very lucky uh, to uh, work on committees um, where, I'm just trying to think, well, probably the, the best committee was the finance committee with James Rajat uh, as the chair. And I think he genuinely tried to be fair to all parties. He tried to be collegial. He would try to engage us after hours to, to build relationships. And uh, the last parliament that I was in, and that was the conservative majority, under Stephen Harper, there were, I mean, certainly a lot of complaints, and we complained as loud as anybody about partisanship in the government and not answering questions in question period and omnibus budget bills, all of these things. And um, I don't know the internal machinations of the Conservative caucus at that time, but I do have to say when I went across the floor and spoke with ministers or engaged people um, in discussions. I mean, people were very collegial. And you know, what stands out in my mind um, was the press gallery dinner, Lisa, where Elizabeth May was at the mic and she was having a, a really rough time. And talk about the fact that we always dance together at the press gallery, <laughs> which is true too. Um, but she was ha she was having a difficult time at the mic. It was people were getting like really uncomfortable, and Lisa, who by this time had kicked off her uncomfortable shoes and was in her stocking feet, raced to the front of the room and just put an arm around Elizabeth, and everybody just went. <sighs> Okay, it, she's got it under control. And it was a really an act of kindness and empathy. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I didn't travel much because I was in a very competitive riding. But the couple of trips I did take, one was to observe uh, an election um, that was multi-party and another time uh, for a um, religious event that was important to my community. And, you know, people that I probably had very little in common with, getting to know them, traveling with them, having a meal with them, it just made a huge difference. So I wish there were more opportunities to do that, even coinciding with the kind of dog-eat-dog -dog politics of getting elected, staying elected.
So I've learned two things now that I'm in private sector. It's, and I have, and they're a little bit difficult for me to learn, I have to admit. The first is, um, after years and years and years of being told not to spend any money on entertainment, and if you do, we're going to publicize it to all of Canada, it would appear my job is to actually take people to lunch. And I'm having a real, I have PTSD every time someone says, do you want to go to lunch? Because I've spent 11 years not doing that. From page of the globe, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's one lesson. The other lesson I learned is a piece of advice I was given by a, a friend of mine, Mark Spiro, who made the very astute observation that in government, in partisanship, the people across the aisle are your enemy. And they're not on your side. And in public, the private sector, just because someone disagrees with you doesn't mean that they're not on your side because you're on the same team and you're gonna work together on certain things. I have a hard time in, in, at the bank now trying to remember that when somebody disagrees with me, it's not all, you know, that's it, I'm never talking to them again, they're not on my side, they're gonna be the official opposition of my entire time at CIBC, and that's the way it's gonna go. And I have to, you know, I have to step back and realize that not everybody thinks along partisan lines all the time, and it's really hard to unwind that and remind myself a lot that it's not the case, but in why is it okay that we're like that in Parliament, and why are we trained to be that way? Because, I mean, I didn't come upon this naturally. This is something that has been embedded in me in the last 11 years, to the point where somebody outside the process can actually make the observation and give the warning that as you re-enter, remember, not everybody is gonna try to be your enemy. In fact, everybody is your friend. And that's why sometimes I think the private sector look at us and say, you're a bunch of lunatics because we have to get, we have to get along with everybody. We're all on the same team. Are we not on all the same team Canada? You know, that, that adage, we're all on the same team trying to do what's better for our country. Why do we then line up as bitter enemies? And just one thing that I, I think I did learn in my time being elected is that the vast majority of MPs, what, you know, whatever political stripe they are, people get elected because they want to make the country a better place. I mean, there's the odd person who says, well, I just really want to be somebody. But most people really want to make the country a better place. They come because they believe they can make a difference. And they may be totally diametrically opposed paths but that, there was a genuineness that I found in most members of parliament. Yeah, I'd have to agree, people are very, very nice in the house generally. There are some people that uh, I think are a little uh, scary. <laughs> I want to know no, who now. No, I'm not going to say who. Come on. Uh, okay. But you know, there there are some individuals that uh, you know I'd be a little reticent to maybe cross the floor to shake hands with. Um, others, you know, I've been to music concerts with. Uh, you know, we've hung out uh, both conservatives and NDP. Uh, you know, I've chatted with Elizabeth May, the Bloc Québécois. I was on, uh, you know, uh, you know, we were on a visiting a military installation once because I was in in the military for a number of years and. And you know, had a great conversation with them. Uh, got to go. We were on a submarine, actually. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. Yes, um, but uh, but you know, you had to. It was the opportunity of actually building relationships. And one of the things actually I really loved is I actually kind of enjoyed the partisanship. Uh, I didn't like it when it got too hyper and too excited. 
but you know, and I think there's a you know a kind of a, a moderate level of partisanship, which I think is actually good. It you know it coalesces groups around uh, you know an idea about what our society and the direction our society should go in. And you know it offers you know something very distinctive to Canadians because if we're all some just bland form of Canadian values, you know I think we're all Canadian values up here. Uh, you know I think it makes it hard for Canadians to choose. Well, you know are we choosing over personality over ideas? What do we want in a government? And I think Canadian government works really best when it's surrounding ideas and how they juxtapose themselves in in the larger international sphere. You know the United States, England, you know in in China, all these other countries, and and how we fit in together. And the partisanship, though, I like, for instance, I remember the Conservatives forced us to do those light night votes, uh, you know, for 48 hours in a row or something like that. And I loved it. You know, you're in a historic moment. We're holding up the government. We're, we're fighting for what we believe in. We're funding this organization. We're funding this organization. And, you know, it's exciting, you know, but it's long. You know, you're, you know every 12 minutes you get to stand up you know, and your vote's recorded, and, you know, everyone's kind of griping because we're all tired, um, and uh, and it's kind of, it's it's fun, and I know, but there is kind of a one thing that I, I do realize, as well as some of my, you know, my colleagues, like one of the colleagues was sitting next to me, he was, you know, in his uh, late 60s, you know, he was uh, a little tired with the late night votes, he found it very strenuous, but, you know, I was just in, you know, in my uh, early 40s, and I was like, "Well, oh, this is awesome. Like, uh, you know, like <laughs> we can go all night. Let's do this for three more days. No, Robert, don't say that. Don't yell at them across the way. We can get an agreement, go home. Well, we learned that from, I mean, Peggy, when you guys came in as opposition, we started we off in 2011. did that to the conservatives. Yeah. yeah, you did that to us. It was three days, the end of June at the very, very end. It was brutal. It was brutal. Overnight, yeah. Yeah, but I found it was camaraderie uh, because I, our, our house leader, uh, Pablo, got up and gave a rousing speech before we go in to start this vote. And, uh, you know, everyone's cheering and we're all pumped up and, and you know, we're excited. During uh, our votes, I remember we would share snacks in the House of Commons. We'd throw, I don't know, Smarties and stuff. I mean, it, it kind of degenerated. <laughs> It got to be. We did it three times. We did it. You guys forced it once in '11, and then Liz May had us do the one on the on the budget on the navigable waters um, change, and then we did it to you guys. So welcome to the club, buddy. Love it. It's all good. Yeah, but let's do it again. Brought, we'll do it again tonight. No, but you guys brought all your cots. Well, the funny story about that is you guys brought your cots in. So the, the government of Canada in the last time, they brought in cots and they set them all up. I know they... they in the lobby? In the lobby, in the new parliament. They leased or they purchased or rented all these cots for their MPs to go and lie down. So one of our guys decided... That's a soft way. I in. know, totally. But it, um, they, one of our guys decided to borrow one of the cots and brought it back, and everybody took their picture with the cot and sent it over to the Liberals. So, well, I'll yeah, tell it's you. all high school, right, guys? It's all high no, school. No, no, but you know, you do get some like little hour off because you do kind of rotate. There is kind of a ladies and gentlemen's agreement about uh, about how the voting goes because otherwise it is unmanageable. You do need at least an hour of sleep once in a while. And we I never did that. We never got the oh, hour. Oh well, it should be you know <laughs> should be nicer than that, less partisan. But um, we had. Uh, I remember Catherine McKenna, our Minister of the Environment, she had set up her, uh, her, uh, her pillow and her sleeping bag on, on uh, one of the couches. And, uh, and I, I guess she'd set it up and I came out and it was empty and I was like, oh, I you know, slipped right in, put something over my face and I was out and she came out afterwards and she's like, oh, Robert's 
asleep. I, I'll go somewhere else. You're Goldilocks. <laughs> yeah, she did. Yeah, yeah, she did not. She left me alone, suit and tie. But you know, she she was more relaxed because you still have to wear suit and ties. You can't uh, can't escape it. Yeah, we, we heard this in the interview of the uh, all night voting. Someone said it was great. It was like summer camp, and I made such good friends. And I, I didn't expect that. Um, so just want to leave a few minutes for question and answer at the end. So uh, why don't we just zoom out, and I'll ask simply because you know, some people here might be contemplating uh, pursuing public office. N knowing what you know now, at the end of it all, maybe not the end, at this juncture, um, would, you, would you do it again? Would you do it the same way? Would you do it differently? Well, I have no plans to run again, but I'm still super enthused about politics. I just, when I came here, I came from a, a class that I teach at Ryerson on women in politics. We do a women in the house program. And uh, these young women are just so enthusiastic and um, uh, excited about politics. So I still feel that way. I do some international work on that as well. Um, what I would have liked to have known, um, I guess from the first time I was elected, um, where we were just kind of thrown in on our own, our party, our caucus was so small, we didn't really know what we were doing. I, I would have liked more of that savvy guidance of the, the people who know how to get things done, that kind of informal thing. But um, I still have the political bug. I would encourage anybody who's thinking of it um, to talk to me. I would love to uh, share my enthusiasm. And, um, you know, is it worthwhile? I felt, in spite of all the limitations and never actually making it to government, I would say best job ever, such a privilege. So I would recommend it to anybody. Um, I would recommend it to everyone. I think it's, uh, it's one of the most noble things you can do uh, for your country, for your community, for your family. It's uh, absolutely, um, I loved every minute of it. Uh, even the very difficult moments when I was, you know, there were moments when you were angry, you were upset about, you know, the way a decision had gone. But, you know, if you, you're patient and you're persistent and you push and, or, you know, in a gentle way sometimes, you don't even have to be angry about it. You just kind of take a deep breath. You can get the end result that you're looking for. And you have to realize you're also part of 338 other people and then, you know, you know at least a other thousand people who, who work as political staffers on the Hill and then there's deputy ministers. It is an absolutely uh, beautiful experience and I think we should have actually have more respect uh, for politicians because, you know, also it is, um, you know, people if they do go into it, they should realize it is actually a, quite a, a large sacrifice, like essentially my university career um, you know, if I go back in, I might run again, I might not, but I have to make a decision about, you know, funding uh, on research grants that I had. I had, you know, almost $750,000 worth of research grants that I had to give up when I became elected, uh, you know, ending, you know, a, a fairly, which would I thought would have been a, in today's climate, a, a faster rise through academia. And uh, so that is a, you know, starting, that's a career path that you either close at some point and you have to pick something. And, you know, as my grandmother said, this is a, you know, this is a risky proposition that you've chosen. 
So uh, I'm still detoxing from the election, and I'm trying to get my, my head around the last 11 years, but I have two thoughts coming out of my time. And I've stopped referring to it almost as if it's a prison sentence. You know, I did my time kind of thing. But I had two thoughts. Number one, if you're a young person and you think that you may want to go into politics, I highly recommend you doing almost like a gap year and going to work for a politician on the Hill, Queen's Park, City Council, wherever. Go and do that, because I think that will give you a good basis on how the process works. And it's very important to know what the process is in order to be effective as a member of parliament or an MPP. Because you don't want to waste your time being there. Peggy's right. There, we always said there's two types of people. Those who go to Ottawa to be someone and those who go to Ottawa to do something. So you want to go to Ottawa to do something. Learn the ropes. Do a gap year. Don't jump right into running necessarily if you have the luxury of time on your hands. And the second thing is at the other end of the spectrum, which is I am not a big fan of people going longer than three terms. I'm going to tell you, I was exhausted at the end of my third term. I don't know. I still represent at Milton, but I got to tell you, it was, it was, uh, it's a long haul. And if you're doing it right, you should be exhausted by the time you get to the end of it all. So always think about what your exit looks like and that you are going to eventually, you have a finite amount of time to get something done. Pick when it makes the most sense for you in your life to do it, but try to garner a little bit of experience beforehand so when you have that, that golden opportunity to run and win, um, you're going to get something done and you look back on it with great fondness. Thanks so much. So we do have about 10 minutes for, for questions. There are uh, microphone stands on both sides. Uh, it would be great. I would encourage you um, to ask uh, quick questions, get to the question mark part uh, as quickly as possible in order, the, in order that we can uh, collect as many questions in these 10 minutes as possible. Wonderful. Do you want to start? This side? Thank you. Sure. Hello. Uh, my name is Shireen Salty. I'm the uh, executive director of the Canadian Arab Institute. Oh, before that, I was actually um, an intern at the Ontario Legislature Internship Program, uh, sponsored by Smart Canada, and I've worked for both government and opposition, members of uh, MPPs, uh, which was uh, the most fascinating job I've ever had. So thank you all for sharing your insights and for being here. Um, uh, it's truly admirable uh, listening to all of you. Um, I've always been interested in the diversity uh, of members of parliament in the house and um, how it reflects so, sort of our society's uh, demographics. And so, Lisa, I know you spoke a little bit about how, you know, the house um, being such an equal place for you as a member of parliament. I'm curious to know what you think are some steps uh, each party uh, can take to ensure um, that it is more equal, not only inside, but an equal place to get to through the nomination process, et cetera, to ensure it reflects the diversity of our country. Thank you. That is a different, that's a different question. Are we listening to everybody and then talking? I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. Well, I was, but that's the key, right? Once you get there, you're all equal. Getting there is the hard part. And we need to do a lot better. And it's, um, that's a whole different conversation about how we ensure NDP and Liberals have different ways to approach it than we do. Um, in my party, I can speak on behalf. We, we were really, we were much better in getting more women to run last time than the, than the times before, which I'm very proud. But uh, the struggle continues. You know, I'm going to continue on the path of making sure that we attract women and uh, diverse people to the party without a question. 
beg, borrow, and steal wherever I can. Well, I never would have been able to run for the nomination if our party didn't have an equity provision. So before a constituency can have um, the party nomination, you have to have equity candidates. So when I first ran, I didn't do what Lisa suggested, which is being an intern and finding out how things worked. I did just jump in. Uh, and I just jumped in to run for the candidacy, but I found out there was a, a guy who'd been campaigning for about six months to win the nomination. And um, if there hadn't been the rule that they needed an equity candidate, uh, they couldn't have had, that's why they hadn't held the nomination. So because of that rule, which I didn't even know about, um, I, I was able to run, mount a campaign, and win the nomination. Um, and it has, because I've also done candidate search, it has helped us in finding more diversity in our candidates, and I think we've been doing a much better job. What we haven't been doing a better job of is actually winning the seats. Uh, and that's not because of diversity, it's just, other political factors, but I think if we had the right political muscle and we were able to win, we would be electing a much more diverse uh, group of representatives. You know, I know you're approaching it, you know, from multiple perspectives, but I think there's actually another one, is uh, social class. Uh, I think the House of Commons is actually fairly uniform in its social class. I know there are people that have been refugees uh, previous to this, Hamid Hussain, and people that you know did grow up uh, relatively poor, but generally people are fairly middle class. If you ask MPs how many have tattoos, you know not very many people have tattoos. If you ask regular Canadians, or even for instance in Winnipeg, most Winnipeggers, you know, I generally find many of them will have tattoos, and it's uh, this is it's kind of interesting. Um, because I think this, you know, that idea of like where you're from and, and you know, uh, that social class actually does predetermine a lot of the policies that you're going to favor. Um, and, you know, you know, there are issues with government sometimes, they, they tweak some, a tax measure or something like that. British Columbia just had this recently in their budget. You know, they tweak still, you know, a child benefit and they they tweak something in the tax code. And you know, it actually was more detrimental to the people who were in greater poverty than people who were in the more upper middle class. And it's, but the people who are in parliaments or who are in politics are generally the middle, upper class. You know, the upper class generally stay out most times. It's fairly unusual to have someone from the upper classes who participates, like Bill Morneau. Um, you know, it's an unusual thing um, because they have other levers they can do to influence society. Uh, that's probably more fun. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, f f and I think for average Canadians, I think we have to find ways of getting those other people's involved in politics. And that, but that, I don't know how to do it. Because I think, you know, apart from mandating, you know, quotas, you know, how do you decide, you know, one riding versus another riding? It's, it's so difficult. Even, you know, how many women we have in the house, how many visible by minorities, do we have enough people who were born outside of the country, people who are uh, LGBTQ, Indigenous Canadians, you know, uh, racialized minorities, it, you know, the, the list can go on and it becomes very, very difficult. 
it's it's interesting to hear some parties do have mechanisms, but I'm not. Uh, some days it's just you got to get in there if you have a dream and just duke it out and fight for you know what you want and never say you know never that it might not happen. You know, people gave me the you know the least unwinnable riding in in Winnipeg in Winnipeg Center. They said, "Oh, you'll never win it, but you know you can run, Robert." You know, and I was asked to run, and you know, lo and behold, in 2015 I won. So, you know, the team won, the people as well. So I'll suggest maybe collecting a question on both sides. Yeah. So, sir, thank you. So this terrific session, and thank you all for being here. I'm huge fans of each of you, and a big fan of the Samara. Center for Democracy and putting together forums like this. And you may have already covered this to a degree, but I followed each of your careers with interest even before you each ran. And I'm wondering, sometimes people feel that when someone gets elected, they park their brain at the door of the House Commons. And yet there has been great successes. And I'm sure each of you left Parliament feeling you did have some successes. I remember when Lisa ran and she wasn't on a panel, a post-panel, of leadership candidates. And I said, why wasn't Lisa there? I'd be a liberal, but I said Lisa was who should have been up there, and next thing you know, she's deputy leader. And I think you accomplished, each of you, some great things. I'm wondering if you could share with us what you feel the best thing you did, you know, obviously affected people's lives in your own riding, but that affected all Canadians that we could take away, because I don't think we do enough in celebrating success in political life Canadians tend to see all the, the rhetoric and the negativity, and I think it's a great opportunity with all of you up there to maybe celebrate something you each did, and maybe we could each leave with that knowledge today would be helpful. That's thank great. I, I think that's a really great question. I'll just grab one more and then turn it over. Great. Thank you very much. My name is uh, Kent Glowinski, and I actually work for the public sector. And the question I had, because I work in the privacy um, area of before the federal government, now uh, provincial government, is when we're looking at social media and the fact that I'm 41 years old and we look at younger generations, no one's perfect. They've done things maybe that weren't awesome, that weren't acceptable at one point, which are on Facebook, which are out there now, but then they get vetted by a party. And all of a sudden, someone who's a great person who's had one or two things happen in the past that wasn't great. What kind of advice do you give to someone like that who says, I wanna run, but I haven't lived that perfect life because of social media. Great, so favorite accomplishment and, um, you know. Well, know. I'll start with the second question first. Um, I, you know, we can all remember in election campaigns, gotcha moments where someone had this tweet or a post on Facebook. There's a whole generation that's growing up now that's going to leave this, it's, their social media profiles will be littered with this stuff. And I, I wonder whether it will just become less of a deal breaker for politicians in the future. Because yes, you know, we've all said and done dumb things, but some of us were lucky enough not to have a video of it or <laughs> a post on Instagram or whatever. And so I, um, you know, I guess it always depends on the degree of the comment. But, I mean, I do know some examples of people in the last, um, I think it was provincial campaign, who, um, 
there was an NDP candidate who had made some comment about the police or something, and and basically he kind of blew past it. It didn't affect him ultimately. So uh, I think it depends on degree, but I think there's going to be greater acceptance of people's fallibility. I hope there is. Um, in terms of uh, accomplishments or things, you know, I, I, Lisa and I were talking before the panel that some of the most satisfying work you do as an MP is representing your constituents. You know, I used to do these disability tax clinics. So people didn't know they could qualify for a tax credit. And I remember one woman, we got her $30,000 uh, because she did, because you could go back several years. And that was huge. Um, you know, there was a, a fellow who had a relative in a human rights, he was, I believe he was Eritrean, he was blind, and he had a relative in um, a refugee camp. And he contacted me from Kitchener, where he had moved, a couple of years after I was defeated, to tell me that this relative had finally made it to Canada, and thank you so much for all the work our office had done. So you need amazing staff, but boy, you can make a real concrete difference in people's lives. I agree completely. I think there are some beautiful things that are done uh, with your staff members. I think they, uh, my staff did some incredible work, uh, people who had been ignored for a long time. Um, because I think some people, you know, I think it's interesting when you have a swing seat or it becomes a swing seat, uh, people can't take it for granted. You know, the person who was in my riding before, you know, was been there for a very long time. And there were a lot of cases that I spent a lot of time cleaning up that had been on the books for seven years, veterans issues. And, you know, it took a long time because the cases were very complicated. But, you know, you, someone's life you made a, a difference in. Like, um, uh, and, you know, that's gratifying. Um, but also I'd like to say, like, on the parliamentary side, when, when uh, being in the House, uh, you know, all the work actually that you do is not by yourself either. Uh, it's you know it's actually a, a team of people influencing with you a team ministers you know uh, making decisions uh, you know deputy ministers political staff that you work with uh, some lobbyists sometimes working uh, indigenous organizations or other organizations uh, trying to get things done um, and you know for me like some of the things I'm most proud of is the Canada uh, the Canada Child Benefit ensuring. Uh, that we have a homeless plan, that we have a housing uh, budget uh, for to get people, you know, off the streets. Uh, we have a meth and, you know, an opioid crisis strategy, and, you know, we're trying to develop that. Uh, you know, the child welfare legislation for Indigenous peoples, the Indigenous language legislation, you know, that I was intimately involved in, getting translation of Indigenous languages in the house, like those things, you know, and I look back and I say, four years, you know, I can look myself in the eye, in the mirror, in the bathroom, before I go to bed at night and say, yeah, you know, bravo Zulu. <laughs> Starting on the social media, uh, it's almost like a lesson in crisis communications now, and, and the path is very clear. You have to own it, you don't deny it, you apologize, you're authentic when you apologize, and show that you've learned from it and move on. And that's the best thing that you can do, and that's kind of what I tell my kids all the time, that that's their path forward for 
the obvious mistakes that they're going to be making in their young lives, being that they're 18 and 15 young men. Um, and on the, on the accomplishments, one thing that I do think that I've made a difference in is I've been really lucky in mentoring some great kids. You know, I was there for 11 years, and there's some people out there. Um, a woman who came to work for me in my constituency office, she had a BA in history. She was working in a warehouse doing stock checking. She came to work with me in my constituency office, and now she's got a fantastic condo and a wonderful job with a corporate business in downtown Toronto because she trained with me for five years and understood how to do stakeholder relations and never would have got that training anywhere else. So that's why I'm saying do a gap year, go get some experience. It really does, it does help. And um, the other thing I will tell you that I did do, and I'm proud of it, that I did it at the time, and you're probably not going to believe I did it at the time because I'm a conservative, but I had a rule when I was Minister of Labor and Minister of Transport. I had a number of boards I had to appoint, and I had a number of entities that I'd have to deal with, and a rule was if you didn't have a woman on your board, I wasn't going to take your meeting. You could go talk to somebody else in my office, but you weren't going to talk to me. Which was shocking at the time, because this was like seven, eight years ago, but I also um, made sure that I was finding good women in smaller communities and putting them on boards of airport authorities and port authorities where they could get their, their experience. And one thing I want to leave you with that, and this is one of the, the issues that I find for a lot of us in, in uh, a lot of women, a lot of um, racialized Canadians, is people think that experience in the subject matter matters the most. I'm going to tell you, it's talent that matters. You look for talent. You don't look for experience in the subject matter, and that will help us move along the curve a little bit more. So I had a little tiny piece with it. Look, liberals in the NDP have been doing this longer than, than I had, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm totally impressed with what they've accomplished as well, but we're not, uh, we're not agnostic on this either. We're all part of it. Oh, I was going to say, just to make Peggy laugh, I was going to say community mailboxes. Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we want to draw things to a close. So the suggestion is just to very, very, very quickly collect the last four questions, and the panels can feel free to answer one or two. Uh, four is a lot to hold in, in your head. Uh, so over here first. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming. Um, my name is Kevin, and uh, Lisa, earlier you mentioned Michael Chong's reform bill, which passed but hasn't had the desired impact. And I think even Michael is not particularly happy with the outcome so far, in fact. He's somewhat been radicalized by it. <laughs> um, for anybody who's been paying attention to Michael Chong recently, he's been promoting the idea of essentially turning political parties into political inst uh, public institutions as opposed to like private clubs, which is pretty radical considering our past. Um, anyway, my question for the three of you is that um, seeing as the Reform Act didn't have the desired impact, um, do you see anything on the horizon or do you have any suggestions for those that are still involved in party politics as to where do we go from here since that didn't uh, achieve what it was meant to? Thanks. And these just very quickly. Um, well, actually, my question is along the same lines, but rather than looking forward, mine is more looking back. Why didn't MPs empower themselves to take more control? When, when the bill was presented, and even after it was passed, there I believe caucuses still uh, have to have votes in order to be able to um, um, 
institute some of the provisions, which I think, generally speaking, they don't, and they just continue to leave uh, uh, power within the uh, leadership. Why aren't MPs empowering themselves? Thank you. Uh, for me, it's, this is just for Robert, that uh, uh, I find that uh, the, uh, the, the real big problem is, is this uh, pipeline that wants to go through uh, the Suwetan territory. And I feel that uh, the Prime Minister should stop hemming and hawing and, and, and just not do it. Get rid of the pipeline, we should be, go we should be going towards renewable energies. And uh, I know he's in the pockets of the big oil corporations, but I feel so, that... you have a question? Yeah, that's, that's basically it. What, what do you feel... How can we move it forward so that we stop relying on fossil fuels and go towards renewable energies? Okay, thank you. I guess I'm the closer. Um, my <laughs> um, so we talked a little bit about social media and we talked a little bit about encouraging people uh, from different backgrounds to run, including women. Um, and so my question to both of you is sort of in this era where it, where for women of, uh, with any profile, and especially profile in politics, it, they receive so, much, so many death threats and threats of sexual violence every day on social media, and we start to see that bleeding into real life, um, as we've seen with Minister McKenna. Um, when young women are, are thinking about that in their calculation about whether they should go into politics or get involved, what, um, what, what guidance do you have to offer? Thanks. Okay. Um, I'm just going to answer that question <laughs> because, um, you know, social media is here to stay and women or racialized candidates or, or anyone who's a bit different, probably indigenous candidates, the same, the same thing, for anybody who seems different from the norm probably faces a disproportionate amount of negative social media. And I don't take it lightly. I remember when um, Joe, what was her last name? The Labour MP was, pardon me? Yeah, she was murdered during the election campaign in Britain, the Labour MP. So I don't take that stuff lightly. I, see, I think there is a continuum. And it's, you know, as soon as you, you lift your head up above the parapet and say, I want to have a voice, you get that. Um, and the higher you go, I think the worse it gets. We had a couple of premier, former women premiers at Ryerson a few weeks back. And, I mean, they talked about some of the vitriol that, that they faced. Um, and one of them said, which was what I did, was just um, block anybody who was um, negative or violent or, well, if it's threatening, you go to the police. But if it's just sexist garbage, I would just block it, or my staff would block it. Um, there was one uh, former PM who said in, um, at a certain period of time, her staff changed all the passwords for her social media and wouldn't let her <laughs> look at it because there was so much negativity. Um, you know, that's all, I, I always feel if people don't have the guts to put their name 
to something, it's probably not worth listening to. So I tended not to pay enough attention to it. Um, but I think you just, you know, you, 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 have to, you have to blaze through that. You just have to say, the most important thing I can do to counter that kind of crap is in fact to raise my voice and to run for office. So I would encourage young women to do that. Um, well, I think the thing about the, uh, it's interesting, you know, Michael Chong's bill that it includes the, it's an optional uh, issues uh, or optional decisions that, you know, the parliamentarians can make this choice. But there is, I think when you're, for instance, in 2015, I think there are a lot of, not IOUs, but this feeling, you know, we're here in government, you know, why were a lot of us elected? You know, you have to look at people's polling numbers before, and I had, I think I had pretty good polling numbers. I'm not sure I owed all my victory to, you know, to Mr. Trudeau, because um, <laughs> uh, I had just run for mayor, you know, previous to that, uh, you know, that federal election. And so I already had quite a large following in, in my own area. And so I thought it was quite a, a reasonable idea to run and have a potential of winning, uh, not the sacrificial lamb. Uh, but I think a lot of other MPs felt that there, you know, there is a lot owing to your leader. And, you know, you want to carry, I think some do want to carry favor. They want to see promotions. They'd like to be in cabinet. It's everyone's dream, apparently, to be in cabinet. Everyone's dream to be a, you know, if they're not in cabinet, a parliamentary secretary, a chair of a committee, and so on, on down the food chain until you're, you know, you're sitting on the Library of Parliament Committee, uh, which I have sat on the Library of Parliament Committee. It's a lovely committee. You know, they do a, you know, a fine uh, sandwich lunch once in a while with the senators and you get to listen to Mike Duffy speak for an hour and a half. Uh, sorry, Mike, if you're listening there. It's not a criticism. You actually do have a, you know, very smooth talker. <laughs> uh, but, uh, it, it, you know, there, it, there's something there in the human nature. And I think the, it shouldn't have been probably, you know, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a vote. It should have been automatic. These are the rules by which these, you know, the political parties or the caucus will be governed. Uh, because I think when the crisis arises and you need to remove your leader or the political party has a, some, an issue going on which is so strong, that calls into confidence the leader himself or herself that they, sh you should, you know, it should almost be like we can instigate, you know, this. But that would lead to chaos that we have in Australia or in, sometimes in England. You know, and Boris, you know, Johnson seems to be doing okay today, uh, but you know, he came due to the, you know, the chaos that you know Theresa May was living with. Um, it, it's. I don't know, it's, it's very difficult. You know, people have to make the decision. Are they going to be thinking that they're going to be there in 30 years as an MP? Or are you likely going to be only there for one or two terms, maximum three terms? Most MPs are turfed after a certain number of terms. There's very, very few safe seats, except for in a few places in the prairies today. Uh, NDP seats and liberal seats seem to change sides quite often. Um, and so that's the difficult. And then the wet sweatin'. Uh, I will say about, one of the things I think, this whole issue surrounding reconciliation, indigenous peoples, Wet'suwet'en, solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en, uh, th this is actually a proxy war for many different groups, whether you're environmentalists or uh, corporate interests or people who want jobs, uh, indigenous peoples, you have hereditary chiefs, you have traditionalists, you have elected bank councils, you have people just who want simple jobs, people, they're all coming at it from a different perspective and using this in their own fashion to try and get what it is that they 
want in society. Uh, for me, as an indigenous leader, I, one, the first thing I say is what do the Wet'suwet'en people themselves want? How do they wish to be governed? Who do they want their lawful jurisdiction to be? Who owns that or controls that jurisdiction? And how is it answerable through uh, a system of accountability? And that's for them to decide. And right now, I think there's lots of people getting involved. There's lots of questions surrounding legitimacy of hereditary chiefs, of elected chiefs. And I think the wet sweat and need to sit down, figure that out. And then, you know, the Canada can sit down with them and say, okay, or, you know, companies, corporations, uh, you know, British Columbia government in this case, you know, say, okay, you know, this is what we want to do. What's the benefit, cost-benefit analysis? What's the benefits to the community? And is this really the long-term interest? And I know people have different ideas around it, but I don't think we should, as Canadians, be imposing, uh, going out and protesting in the streets for wet sweat and solidarity. Because solidarity or who? And that is a huge one for me. If Indigenous peoples want to build a pipeline, you know, okay. But that should be their decision that they make on their own without, you know, 50,000 other different groups or interest groups making that decision or trying to make that decision for them. Great. On reform. I learn so much when you're always here, Robert. I do miss, I miss. No, I do. I miss, I miss sitting on committee with you, but not that much. I'm not running again. So... <laughs> We can, we can form a fake <laughs> committee. We can just sit together. We could pretend. Yeah, we'll play parliament. Yeah. The uh, on this on the reform issue, I will tell you that the Conservative Caucus did adhere and follow the rules that were set out in that piece of legislation, and we did take the votes that we needed to take. And Robert's exactly correct. The reason why the votes don't always go in favor of giving the power to the MPs to remove the leader is because they're afraid of the leader, because you just got elected, and you may have just won, and uh, you're told that you won or you did better because of your leader. Um, so that's what goes through the minds of, of many. We did, though, take the step within the Conservative caucus to take the power back of appointing our own caucus chair, which is no longer a position that is doled out from the leadership. It is one which people campaign for, and they are then, as a result, beholden to the people who elect them as opposed to beholden to the Prime Minister's office, which is really important, or the Leader's office, which is really important when you're dealing with caucus matters. So we got there a little bit. Uh, yeah, Michael's probably not happy with how it all unfolded, but it was a great try, and it doesn't mean that it's over. And um, he is a great example of a member of parliament who understood the enormity and the importance of the role of parliamentary structures when he came into office and just continues to build on it. And he's going to make us all a better parliamentarian um, by the end of the day. And luckily, he's in a riding where he will get elected over and over again because uh, we're better for having him there. And guidance to women. Okay, so here it is in a nutshell, and I'm not going to go long on it. Number one, block, for sure. Number two, report. And number three, protect yourself. That's basically it. And do not let it deter you from running for office, period. Kath McKenna is not the first cabinet minister to be put under close protection, and she will not be the last one. Michelle Rempel had close protection. I had RCMP protection. Jim Prentice had RCMP protection. Jim Flaherty had RCMP. Tony Clement had RCMP protection. It happens. It is part of the job, unfortunately. What's interesting about social media is that it's just getting a lot more notoriety and being told a little bit more. What I was not impressed with on the Kath McKenna piece, though, is the vandalism 
that happened at her office. That was a step too far, but that's where you report, and that's why we all have these ring doorbells now that will tell you who has been on your porch or who has been around, and they can identify the person, and then they need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, because we're not gonna put up with that in our democracy. But as I said, do not let yourself be stopped as a result. So when the leadership came around this time, and I realized that we were going into another leadership race, my question to myself of whether or not I was gonna throw my hat in the ring wasn't about whether or not I felt I was gonna be uh, hassled more or harassed more. That didn't come across my mind whatsoever, and it shouldn't come across your mind either. There are protections in place for public figures, and you can protect yourself and your family easily by making sure that you don't allow them to get to you through social media. And if you do have a threat, you take it seriously and you report it up. And you're right, Peggy. I mean, I didn't like it when um, there was another a, a female um, a congresswoman who got shot many, many years ago, 10 years ago in the United States. And I thought about her as well, too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's un these things unfortunately do happen and people do take matters into their own hands. But for goodness sake, don't let it stop you or even make you pause because there's gonna be people out there who wanna do hateful things based upon nothing. Um, hi everyone, um, I'm Kendall Anderson. I wanna say thank you so much to our panelists, uh, not only for being here today, but also for your public service. Um, it's so important that people put themselves up for this job and um, we know it's a sacrifice and I know sometimes tomorrow seems like we're uh, not on the side of the MPs, but we absolutely are. And, um, and we, want you, we want everyone to feel that they have the right and the responsibility to run for office or be part of politics. So thank you so much. Let's have another round of applause. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if your interest is piqued, please check out the book Real House Lives.